With that, why don't you guys open up to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. That's where we'll be this morning. Question and answer time. How many of you would call this soda? Raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you would call this pop? Raise your hand. Put your hands down. How many of you are from the southeast and would call all of these Coke? Okay. Had some roommates from the south, and they would say, hey, you want a Coke? And I'd say, yeah, sure. And then they'd give me a Mountain Dew, and I'd be like, dude, what's wrong with you? That's a Coke. It's just a Coke that's a Mountain Dew. Uh, What? Here's the next one. How many of you would call these flip-flops? Raise your hand. How many of you are from Hawaii and would call them, uh, let's see, what is it? What is it, Shane? Slippers. You call them slippers? All right. Uh, how many of you inappropriately have not made the change and you still call them thongs? <laughs> a couple of you are like, yeah. See, what's interesting is we've been talking about redemption and repentance and the meanings of these two words because words have meanings. And I mean that intentionally. Words have meanings. Words are hard things to work with because they have a context often based on time, location, culture. It depends on where you're at at the moment. If you're down in the South and you say, I would like a Coke, don't expect to always get a Coca-Cola. In New Zealand, if you say, uh, I want to wear some sandals, they'll look at you funny. But because I think they're maybe politically incorrect or racist, they call them jandals down there, meaning Japanese sandals. Figure that one out. Okay. I learned a lot about sandals last night when I was doing the research. There's context around words. And so last week when we looked at redemption, we got a beautiful picture from the word uh, that the definition of redemption is, yes, being saved, but it's also being redeemed and pulled out of something you're enslaved to and then rightly being brought into a new kingdom and becoming new slaves or bondservants of King Jesus. We saw that in a great fashion last week. And we learned that words have massive meaning because they are, in essence, audible symbols. You hear a phrase, a collection of sounds, and you immediately think up something in your brain because those sounds symbolize that idea. So when we hear words like born again, saved, redeemed, or repent, we automatically run them through the filter of our culture, our experience, our view of the word. That's just human nature, and that's okay. For example, when we hear repentant in the West, here's what we usually think of. Being sorry. And if you think about it, that's part of what being repentant is. Sometimes we add to that a change in behavior. I'm sorry I used to do X, and so now I don't do X anymore. But often the being sorry is all that's required. In fact, the definition that you might find in Webster's Dictionary, which is a very Western definition is this idea of to feel or express sincere regret or remorse. And this is why often in our culture, we'll say to someone, I'm repentant, I'm sorry, without any repentance that actually follows, as we'll see what it truly means. Because the Bible is not just for the Western mind. It's sufficient for all peoples in all times and all cultures to understand who God is, to understand what he requires of us, and what he's referring to when he says repent. And the beauty about the Bible is that it gives us both principles, but also also stories and pictures behind it to tell us what he means. So to fully understand the meaning of the word repent, 
repentance. We need to look at the full context of Scripture. The first usage of the word repent is actually not in the Bible until 1 Kings. It's a long way into the word, 1 Kings. In the Hebrew, here's what it looks like, okay? It's the word shuv. Everybody say shuv. Okay, so when you're disciplining your kids and they won't repent, you should look at them and say shuv, right? Shuv. What it means is to turn back or to return. That root, shuv, it's used over a thousand times in the Bible. And there are many different meanings of it. There's a huge range of what it means. But one of the major meanings at its core is to turn from evil and turn to the good. To turn from evil and to turn from the good. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we'll talk about today, it means to turn from those things that are false and turn to that which is true, Jesus Christ. And we're going to start today in the core or the center of our text. And let's look at Isaiah 45, verse 22 specifically. And this is going to be kind of the uh, the pin that we hang our hats on for the rest of the teaching. And so Isaiah 45, 22 and 23 say this. Turn to me. Shuv. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's going to be the core of our teaching today. This idea to turn from evil toward the good, shuv, is going to be core to the teaching and core to the text. This passage and the surrounding text What it says about repentance is that to repent has to do more with our allegiance and our values and the eventual change in behavior than it does with feeling sorry or simply changing behaviors without the changing allegiance. So you can write it down this way. To repent is to change our allegiances and values. You can't change your allegiances and values and not have an output of changed behavior. It's impossible. Let me give you an example. Prior to marrying Kelly, I had other women that I was extremely close to, right? They were just friends. When I married Kelly, you better be darn tootin', I changed my allegiance, amen? I got one woman I'm close to, and the rest are either friends of Kelly or they're acquaintances to me. And that allegiance changed my behavior. No longer did I give my deepest, darkest feelings to the women around me. I gave them only to my wife. That's a change of allegiance. Does that make sense? And that's a change of allegiance that would make sense. Amen? Amen. So young couples, when you come to me in premarital coaching and I say, any close friends of the opposite gender that are not your soon-to-be spouse, you need to lower the expectation of the friendship. Don't say to me, oh, well, we're different. Okay, heard that too many times, seen it wreck too many situations. Just a little freebie there for you. You you can pay me later. All right. And so this is repentance. Our values were once for self and prosperity, building a God in our own mind that we could easily submit to because it was a God made in our image. And this is not repentance. Repenting from that means giving our allegiance instead to the one true and living God and changing our value systems, our relationships, 
the way we use our time, talents, and treasure to reflect that allegiance. In the historical context of what we're going through today in the Word, Judah had been in Babylon for around two generations. Okay, Now, not two full generations, but they'd been there for two generations. And what we learn from history is that any people group that has to leave their homeland and be in a different culture, within two generations, their culture, their religion, their language will most likely disappear. And this is what had started to happen to Judah. They had been in Babylon for two generations. And Isaiah is saying to these people that are leaving Babylon and going back to Israel, he's saying, guys, recognize that you've bought into the lie of the surrounding people group. Return to the God of truth, the God of the Bible that you were called to serve. But before we get there, let's start back a bit and first understand a few things. First, I want you to write this down. There is only one sovereign creator God. There is only one sovereign creator God. And the truth is, is that he has a name. Not multiple names. Buddha, Allah, none of those. It is the God of the Bible and him alone. His name is Yahweh, and he sent his son Yeshua, or Jesus, to save us. And he operates in his church by the Holy Spirit. He is the triune God of the Bible. He is the only sovereign creator God. And we will see this established very strongly in our text to begin with. Let's look at Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens who spread out the earth by himself, by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and the temple, your foundation, shall be laid. The Almighty Lord, the God of Israel, the name above every name, had worked redemption for Judah. He was bringing them back from exile in Babylon, enslaved in Babylon. He was freeing them from that enslavement. He was freeing them from that kingdom and bringing them back to reestablish a new kingdom in his name. And so in the midst of this section, you see all sorts of word, words that speak of his aloneness, the one true God. I'm the one that created by myself. Nobody else helped me. I am the redeemer. I am the creator. I am the provider. And in all these capacities, he says, I will restore and rebuild my people. And the way he would do this is in this miraculous prophecy, naming the king that would come and destroy Babylon and truly free Judah to the fullest. You see, at this time, they had been taken into Babylon, right there where the red arrow is. And up to the right there in Media and Persia, there was a kingdom brewing that would have a king named Cyrus that would come in and wipe out Babylon and take over as the prominent kingdom of the day. 
And so God, because of his infinite wisdom and knowledge, he makes a point to say, I even know the guy's name who's going to smack you down and bring the Israelites, the Judahites, out of enslavement. This is God flexing his muscle and power, saying, I alone am the one in control. And my plan is playing out and will be accomplished. This is a powerful God, folks. This is not, Jesus is my homeboy. This is not the God that pops out of the lamp when you need him to come fix something. And this is not the God that is fire insurance that allows you to do whatever you want your whole life and then let you in through St. Peter's gate when you die. Who is this God? Here's who he is. He's redeemer. He's creator. He's provider. He's the rebuilder. And he is the sovereign God. He is the authority above all other authorities. We would do well to view our God this way. I very rarely have to help Americans get the idea that God is their friend. This is what I have a hard time convincing Americans of. That he is holy and powerful. And yet he is on the side of his people walking with us in love. He then pursues this idea of his sovereignty in a massive way and shows that nothing can stand in the way of accomplishing his plan of ultimate restoration and redemption. Look with me there at Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you, he's talking to Cyrus here, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Guys, Christians can't be those people who say, yeah, Jesus is one of the gods. There is no other God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Do you think he's getting that across a little bit? I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now pause here for a second. While the focus remains on Cyrus, the true subject here is God himself. Nothing can withstand his plan. Bars, gates, doors, secrets, none of it can withstand his plan. My will, your will, Satan's will, nothing. We can be assured that God will accomplish his plan to ultimately bring about restoration and redemption. And precious flock, we should take massive comfort in this. Massive comfort. No matter what evil befalls you or what trial or tribulation you go through, God is at work at all times, resolving all of the injustice, working to bring about the truth in victory. 
Now, you might say, if you're like me, being an individualistic American, that's all well and good that you say that, Hans, but what about the evil in my life, the evil that we see in the world every day? What about the terrorist attacks? What about the evil? What about the rapes? What about the molestation? What about all that evil? Is God the one creating that? And to answer this, we must balance the complete biblical account. We as Americans love to take one verse and run with it, and that is not what we are to do. This section of Scripture, along with many others, does indeed, and we have to be honest about this, speak to this truth, that God is the ultimate authority in ultimate control. In a sense. It seems as though He is the cause of all that occurs in the world. That is the truth of this Scripture. At the end of the day, He is the one with the authority. But yet, but yet, If we look at all other Scripture, we see numerous places where God says that His will is not the only will at work. For example, let me show you Jeremiah 19. This is one of three places in Jeremiah where he says this same exact statement. Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known, And because they have filled this place with the blood of innocence, they've built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. You see, the reality is, is I absolutely 100% believe in a sovereign God who at the end of the day is in full control of the movement of all civilization and the entire universe. But love requires choice. And because He loves us, He has given freedom to the will of His created beings, including me, including you, including demons, and Satan himself. And so what I believe is that the balanced view of Scripture is that God is all-powerful, and yet, because love requires choice, He allows free will to run its course. And we must view all that happens in tension. And so I believe what the Bible paints is that God works in different ways at different times with different people. Sometimes exercising His powerful presence, forcing people to do things, and at other times, most of the time, giving freedom to His free will. great example is Paul. Paul said, I had no choice. You read in Acts, it says, I was the chosen tool of God. Paul had no choice. He was drawn. He was chosen. He was predetermined. Within a couple of chapters, you see Cornelius praying for God to meet him. And God says, Oh, Cornelius, I heard your prayer. Now I'll come to you. One is free will and one is predetermined. That's why those of you who are theology nerds like me, will understand that I'm Calminian. I am not Calvinist, and I am not Arminian. I read the Bible, and I balance what the Bible has to say, and that's what we must do. So the world asks, why doesn't God do something about all this evil? And the reality is the entire Bible, every word, every phrase, every letter speaks to this fact. He has. He has given His only Son to pay the atoning price for our sins and the sins done to us and for the rebellion of all creation so that we could be redeemed. And He has given His creation free will to choose to follow Him by His grace, 
His grace has been sent to all creation, wanting all to come to Him and not perish. But He's allowed our free will to then choose. And so as we go on, we're going to see that overall, God's plan will stand. His ultimate plan of redemption will stand. For example, will Israel be saved? Yes. Does that mean that individual Israelites are in hell? Yes. And yes. How can it be both? Because God will make sure that the name of Israel stands. But individuals within the the nation of Israel, they will get to choose. If you want to talk about that more, I'm happy to do so. But today, let's just take that and realize we must walk in tension. What we will see here is that God's ultimate plan will be done. And all those who stand in the way of this plan, including you, including me, if we stand in the way of it, we will be brought to account. Let's take a look there at verse uh, 45.8 and see what it says. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, What are you begetting? Or to a woman, With what are you in labor? In other words, that's ridiculous. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him. Ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He, Cyrus, shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. And Cyrus would free the people from Babylon and then encourage the people to go back, Nehemiah and Ezra and their people, to reestablish Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so once again, as we saw a few weeks ago in the paradox, the identity paradox of the servant, there is yet another servant here who the Lord uses, and that is Cyrus. And all of this speaks to one amazing truth, that there is only one authority. That God is the one that is doing the work. He will accomplish His plan. And it is because of this. Write this down. The God of Israel is the only Lord. Notice that in the end of chapter 45, uh, or throughout 45, there is a constant refrain, I am the Lord, there is no other. Now why would he need to state this over and over and over again? Guys, one of the biggest rules in reading the Bible is when something is stated multiple times, it is important. And so we must remember the context of the ancient Near East to understand this. Remember with me, folks, that the God of Israel is the only Lord, but remember that His people were walking in a land where they were surrounded by local deities of local people groups. This was a land in the ancient Near East of varied peoples, each with their own domesticated deities. Baal, Molech, Dagon, Dagon it, Ashtoreth, All of these were local deities. Now, the Bible tells us that at the Tower of Babel, that's in Genesis 11, you can go read it on your own. You guys are probably familiar with the story. At the Tower of Babel, God dispersed the people of the world according to their people groups and the deities that they worshipped. 
I don't have time to go into the detail of why that is, uh, but Deuteronomy talks about it. Genesis talks about it. It's all over the place. They were dispersed according to their people groups and the deities that they worshipped in those people groups. This is why you always see a deity attached to a people group in the Old Testament. And what God was giving them over to was the false deities that they worshipped. He was lovingly saying, you want to pursue these false deities? Feel free to go do so. And these deities were idols with fallen angelic or demonic beings behind them. And so as they gave these idols worship, they were worshiping demonic beings. First Corinthians tells us that. And so this is why you see throughout the Bible these odd references to certain demonic beings being given certain geographic regions over which they were in control. One example of this is when the angelic messenger comes to Daniel in Daniel 10 and says this really odd thing about why he had been detained in coming to Daniel. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, we know Michael is an angel, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. He's saying he was in the midst of fighting demonic, fallen angelic beings and was at war with them. And Michael came and laid the smack down and freed him to go give the message to Daniel. Now, this is totally foreign to us in a Western mentality. We're like, demonic beings? What? Come on. Spiritual? What? The reality is, is that all kingdoms have behind them fallen demonic beings running them as the kingdoms of this world. This is why Satan, when he came to Jesus to tempt him, he said, Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Now, did Jesus go, oh, you're wrong. That's not true, Satan. Or did he say, Satan, you're trying to manipulate? No, he said, nope, don't want him. Jesus, why didn't you correct him if this is a lie? Well, because it's not a lie. Jesus knows that he has one kingdom, his people, And all other kingdoms have behind them demonic entities, including our own country. As much as you want to say the United States is a Judeo-Christian country, folks, behind the kingdom of the United States is not Jesus Christ, but a foreign God. And we'll talk about that in a second. Now, before those of you who are very patriotic, want to lynch me? Listen with me what I have to say. Because of this biblical understanding that the authorities that govern the kingdoms of the world are demonic, we understand why God's word was given. God's word was given to help his people, Israel, and eventually the church, understand who they were and who we are and where they came from as they entered into Canaan a people with foreign gods, in order to protect them from perverting their religion to the one true God and incorporate instead false demonic doctrines. Let me give you an example. In Genesis chapter 1, you read the account and it says that the sun and the moon were created to keep the times and seasons and help them basically in their festival calendar to give glory to God. Every other people group in Canaan worshipped as gods the moon, and the sun. For Moses to write in Genesis 1 that the sun and moon were created things to give glory to the true God was like, whoa, hold on, fella. This is crazy. 
It was given to fight back the wrong understanding of who God is. And this is so important for us to understand, folks, because remember, Judah had been in exile within the ancient kingdom of Babylon, a place that was not their home. They were strangers and pilgrims. Now, Babylon had one deity in particular that was their top deity, and his name was Marduk. Everybody say with me, Marduk. You can say better than that, Marduk. It sounds like a great Dane, doesn't it? Marduk, okay? Now, he was the creator God, and the people made Marduk a tower in the, into the heavens. It's also called a ziggurat, okay? And they made a tower, and this tower was the Tower of Babylon. This was where they worshipped him. Now, why does this matter? Because that god, Marduk, was also referred to as Bel, a derivative of Baal. Both of those words mean the Lord. Marduk was known as the Lord. In the creation account of the Babylonians, he was known as the victor God, the God that restores. In other words, Marduk was competing for the name, the title, and the authority of the Lord against the real Lord, the real authority, the true creator God. And guys, this is the case with any idol or false deity. They compete for the title and position of Lord in our lives. Have you ever noticed in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, the name of God is Lord? Look at your Bible, find a spot where it says Lord, and it's in all capital letters. It looks different. Well, underlying that in the Hebrew is this. yod He vav He, four consonants. Y, H, V, and H. That's what's in the Hebrew. Every time that is written, in the English, it's transcribed to the Lord. Now here's why. That is basically what it would look like in English. And here's how we have kind of tried to turn it into English. Yahweh or Jehovah? We're not really Yehovah. We're not really sure which. But we know that that is the proper name. And so what we have done is we have followed what the Israelites did. They would never, ever, ever pronounce Yahweh or Yehovah. We have people that listen to the podcast all over the world. And I want to say I apologize to those of you who are in the Middle East because you will find this offensive that I'm even stating the name of God. They would instead say Adonai, which means Lord. So anytime they wanted to talk about Yahweh, they would say Adonai or Lord. And this word means not just a title for God, but it means he is my master, my king, and my sovereign. There's extreme reverence. And so now this battle, this fight between the supposed lords makes sense. You have the true and living God, Yahweh, who created all mankind. We rebelled and created instead idols to do our bidding. And one of those idols grows into this massive cult-like religion in the middle of present-day Iraq or Babylon known as Marduk. And this was the Tower of Babel. And this religion continues and is passed down and fans out. And it goes to a place called Ur near Babylon. You can go to Ur today and you can climb up this restored ziggurat, the restored, in essence, tower much like the Tower of Babel. Saddam Hussein was in the middle of rebuilding it when he was ousted from power. 
Here's a picture of some of the troops walking up the stairs of that ziggurat that was there to Marduk, the Lord. And that religion was the religion that Abraham and his family was part of when he was called out in Genesis chapter 12. This is the city and religion from which Abraham, his father Terah, and their family leave in order to go to Canaan. And on the way, they stop in a place called Haran. And it is there that Abraham is called by God to leave, note this, his family and the religious system that they subscribe to to establish a new family and to worship a new God, in fact, the true God. Genesis 12, 1-3 says this, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Yahweh said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we read this and we go, oh, isn't that great? It's calling of God. It's so awesome. Think about this for a second, guys. If an entire culture believes that reverence to their God, Baal, means that they will have stronger crops, more fertility with children, better retirement, basically, and they know that one of the things that their God does not like is to have somebody else come in and worship a different God, what do you think will happen when their livelihood is challenged by this Yahoo named Abraham who comes in and sets up an altar to a different God? You're dead. That would be like someone coming into your house and removing all of your prosperity. You would probably throw them out, if not do worse. And so Abraham was called to be loyal to Yahweh, have allegiance to Yahweh against any other God, even if it meant giving his life. God asked him to leave the most important parts of his identity, his culture, his family, his family's religious practices, to become an exile among a foreign people following Yahweh alone, who was unknown to the people that surrounded him. Abraham had been called out of Babylon and out of that religion. Now, fast forward to the days of Isaiah. Judah is now coming back from exile where? Among the same people and same religion that Abraham was called out of. And he was calling them out and saying, you must follow the true Lord. No longer follow that false god Marduk, also known as Bel, the Lord. Take a look at Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. Bel bows down. Guys, that's fighting words for the Babylonians. Your God is weak, and he bows to my God, is what Isaiah is saying. Allah is weak, and he bows to the one true Lord, Jesus Christ. Buddha is weak, and he bows to the one true Lord, Jesus Christ. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. 
all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike." Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place if one cries to it. It does not answer or save him from his trouble. You notice Isaiah's sarcasm here? Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and, say it with me, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey, that's the Medes and the Persians and Cyrus, from the east, the man of my counsel, Cyrus, from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. You who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Only the God of Israel is real. He is not fashioned by man and therefore cannot be controlled by us. The false quote-unquote lords of Babylon are worthless and have no power but to enslave and separate from the true and living God. And Isaiah is speaking to the people that for a couple of generations had been in exile so long in the midst of Babylon that they started to mingle these false gods and false religious ideals with the one true and living God. And rather than stay in obedience to the one true and living Lord, they had created this Judaism and this idea that basically did their bidding and as they pleased, they got to make the rules, they got to be God. And so Isaiah says, I know it's easy to buy into the idols of the land in which you live, but stop it. That is what Isaiah is calling them to. Now you might say, how does this apply to us, Hans, as Christians in the United States? Well, I believe we can very well question ourselves. Have we been consumed by the idols of this land? Idols of this, this land? What are the idols of our culture? Capitalism. Prosperity. Materialism. Narcissism. Obsession with fame and celebrity status. Athletics. Leisure. And above all individualism. How can you tell your idol which one of those made you flinch? Capitalism, prosperity, materialism, narcissism, obsession with fame and celebrity status, athletics, leisure, and above all, individualism. Which have you fallen prey to? Which have I? At the core of American Christianity, though, I believe there is a more devious false deity. That is the god of what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll give you that in just a minute here. In 2005, two sociologists published a book to summarize the findings of the National Study of Youth and Religion, a research project. Thousands of teenagers who are the next generation, many of you were in this age bracket, 
were interviewed regarding their religious beliefs. And here is what they stated in that book. Just listen to the quote. A significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously Christian in any sense that is seriously connected to the actual historical Christian tradition. It has rather substantially morphed instead into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, what is this? Well, moralistic is you need to be nice, not regenerate. This is where we get the idea that true Christianity is defined by being positive and encouraging. It's the niceness problem. Guys, you've been reading through Isaiah with me a long time. Is God nice all the time? No. In fact, it is the father who does not discipline his child who hates his child. It is the man that tries to be nice in the midst of war and evil that is doing the bidding of someone other than Jesus Christ. It is not about being nice. It's about being born again, regenerate in the image of God. Therapeutic. Feel good. I've got to feel good about myself rather than worship, adore, and obey God. Guys, I've been doing this for six years, and I can't tell you how many visitors come and tell me, gosh, I just left so convicted. I don't want to come back to your church. The reality is, is that you're not a Christian because you're following moralistic therapeutic deism. Church is not for you to feel good. Again, you've been reading with me through Isaiah. It's not me that's convicting you, is it? It's the Word of God. Guys, even if you read the happy sections of Scripture, love one another. Give your life to Jesus. Does that make you feel good? If it does, you're reading it far differently than I am. God wants us to not feel good about ourselves and have high self-esteem, but to realize our depravity and the necessity of knowing Him, and that we must worship, adore, and obey the living God, or we will be destroyed. Deism. God created us to live our lives until we need Him to fix it. In other words, He did create us. He's our Creator, but He lets us live our lives. It doesn't matter if we don't obey and don't do what He says. You know, I can find certain things that He says to do, but in my situation, it's different. I can't tell you how many of the young people in this church have told me, yeah, I know that God says don't have sex before marriage, but we love each other. Okay, because that outrules God. I can't tell you how many people I've met with. Yeah, I know that the person I want to marry is not a Christian, but my situation's different. Yeah, because your disobedience won't be looked at as disobedience. Guys, the reality is you either obey Christ or you don't. Don't be a deist. Be a Christian. God created us to worship Him, obey Him, and follow Him. And if we live a life being positive, encouraging, and nice, this teaches us that we will feel good and God will welcome us with open arms into heaven when we die. But here is what you need to understand today. Just as Abraham had to be woken up and brought out of the religion of Ur of Babylon, just as Moses had to be woken up and brought out of the religion of Egypt and Canaan, And just like Jesus came to wake up the Jewish people to the truth of following the one Lord, 
we must be woken up from our false Christianity that calls us to give up nothing, obey no one, and come up with our own version of theology based on how we would like to read the Bible. We must instead return to the God of the Bible and His truth. Return to Me and be saved, He says. How do we return? We remember that this is what the word repent truly means. Here's what you need to write down. Repentance requires allegiance to the one Lord, Jesus. Jesus. To repent is to turn away from anyone and anything to whom you currently pledge allegiance. To turn from all that you value before following Christ no matter the consequences. This is truly laying down your life for the sake of following Christ. This is what it means to count the cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Why is it so hard to obey and prioritize our life according to the values of Christ and His kingdom? I would submit to you that in my life and yours, it's because our allegiance is to something or someone other than Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, it's usually to self. Who is your allegiance to? Is it Christ or your friends who don't want to follow Jesus? Who's your allegiance to? Is it Christ or your family that doesn't want to obey the commands of of Jesus? Is it Christ or the sport that takes all your time, talents, and energy? And yeah, I just, I don't know if we can make another Sabbath that is the Lord's Day because we have another tournament yet again. Is it Christ or the hobby that takes all your money? Is it Christ or the house or business that takes all your energy? Allegiance to Christ is giving Him loyalty no matter the cost. This is true repentance. And guys, this plays out beautifully, practically, involving relationships. Usually when we go to a person who we've harmed and we say, I repent, usually what we're saying is this, I'm sorry, can we hurry up and get past this so I don't have to deal with the consequences of my sin? But see, to repent is to say, I have disobeyed God by hurting you. And I repent and have sinned against God and I choose to obey Him now by confessing to you my sin. This is why David, when he committed adultery and murder, he said, I have sinned against you and you alone, O Lord. Is that true? No, he'd sinned against Bathsheba. And man, he kind of sinned against Uriah, huh? That whole murder thing, right? But he says, I have sinned against you and you alone. And now he tries to make it right. Let me give you an example. Many of you know that I'm a fallible man. Yesterday morning, after a long week of tons of turmoil and, and emotion, I was not doing what I usually do, taking my thoughts captive and my emotions captive, and I was in the midst of a meeting, and I lost my temper in a short outburst, but it was a definite outburst, and I harmed a member of this congregation. And that person knows who, that, who they are. And I have immediately uh, confessed to them and repented to them and apologized. I did it yet again in person this morning. But I am confessing to you that I have sinned against God because in that moment, my desire to be angry in the moment outweighed the care of that person whom I love deeply. And so I confessed to Christ and I confessed to that person and my wife was in the room and I confessed to her as well that I have sinned against God and was not obedient to Him. 
And repentance means that I check my allegiance to my own feelings, my own desire to self-protect, or my desire to follow Jesus and love God and love people. And if I am allegiant to Jesus, it fixes the behavioral issue of the relationship. And so to that person and to you, I would ask your forgiveness as a fallible man who loses his temper once in a while. The reality is, is we each have to check our allegiance every moment of every day. That is what accepting the grace, the room to repent looks like. Let's take a look at Isaiah 45, verse 14, and we'll see what it looks like to have him as Lord. Thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah 45, 14, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. And what does it say? There is no other. Say it with some emphasis, guys. There is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. That's us, guys. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. You see, God has been working to save mankind all along. To save us from the lie that we have believed that there is any other God, any other idol, but the Lord God of the Bible. That we can build our own identities, our own religions, our own loopholes in the midst of obedience to God to suit our own passions. And the miraculous work of Jesus Christ was that he came to declare that only he can save us. That he alone is Lord and he has paid the price for our rebellion against him in building idols that are against him. We deserve death and eternal separation and punishment, but he died in our place as our Savior. The only way to accept that salvation is to accept that truth and to turn to him, to swear allegiance to Jesus Christ alone above all else. This is what Abraham did when he went and established an altar to Yahweh in the land of Canaan. 
This is what Moses did when he declared, declared the first commandment that there is no other God but Yahweh. And this is what Paul declared in the midst of Athens when he said to the people, turn to God. Turn with me to Acts 17. We've got two more places I'll turn you and then we're done. Look at Acts 17. And read Paul with me as to what he said to a people that are not unlike us with our many gods, our many idols. Acts 17, verse 22. Acts is in the New Testament after the Gospels. Acts 17, 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's kind of like how everybody in the United States says that they're spiritual now. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Notice this. This is what we were talking about earlier. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, and he's speaking of the God of the Old Testament, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man he has appointed, from the dead. What does repent mean in this context? It means leaving behind every other allegiance to serve Jesus Christ and him, him alone. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you, dear friend? What do you need to leave behind in relationship, materialism, or simple worship? What is it for you to be loyal to Christ above all others? This is the question I want you to walk away with today. This is the application I need you to search through by the Holy Spirit. What does it look like for you to give your allegiance and the allegiance of your family fully to Jesus Christ as Lord? What does it look like for you to give your allegiance fully to Jesus as Lord? Let's end by turning to Philippians 2. And I'm going to show you what part of that looks like. Philippians 2, and we'll start in verse 5. In Philippians 2, they take that last part of Isaiah that we emphasized. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess allegiance to the Lord. And Paul rolls it into speaking to the local church and telling them what it looks like to have allegiance to the Lord. Philippians 2, verse 5. Let's start there. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, the anointed king, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name, guys? Lord. Why can we call Jesus Lord? Because the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, has given him the authority as Lord. Therefore, God has highly uh, exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Lord, so that at the name of Jesus, the fulfillment of everything that we looked at today in Isaiah, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does it mean to swear allegiance to the Lord? It first means recognizing how God became Lord. He had it innately within Him as the highest authority. He gave it to Jesus Christ, who is also God, one of the Trinity, who gave Himself on the cross that what, that, so that we might be atoned for and forgiven and have our sins paid for. And the sins of the rebellion of the created world was removed. And this was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophesied from beginning to end as the ultimate plan of God to save and redeem His people from enslavement to sin. And in this supreme act of self-sacrifice because He loves every single one of you, the Lord of Israel, the Father God placed His authority upon His Son Yeshua, Jesus, the Anointed One, establishing Him as Lord of all humanity, living and dead. And those that follow Him are saved only by His grace, only by His merciful act. But in obedience and response, they reflect who He is. And in so doing, show allegiance to that same ultimate Father God. Look back a little bit to Philippians 2.1. As part of the same thought, here's what Paul tells the local church. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Our choice is simple. We respond to the loving authority of Christ the Lord by bending the knee now in humble submission, or we bend the knee at the end of days when the Lord brings all that have rebelled against him into judgment. Christians, there is a reason why God calls us to reprioritize our relationships when we become a Christian. It is because those people that you call friends, those people that you call spouses, those people that you call parents or brothers or sisters, if the Lord appeared before you, you hopefully would bend the knee to that Lord. What would they do? 
and in not bending the knee, they are proving not to be your friend, not to love you, and definitely not to pledge allegiance to the Lord you serve. We must reprioritize who is of the kingdom and who is not, and then love those enemies. Turn to him and be saved all the ends of the earth. For he is God and there is no other. For he has sworn to him every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Whether new Christian or Christian for most of your life, today I ask you to consider what it looks like for you to give your allegiance to the loving lordship of Jesus in the midst of your life. Now, as a covenant family, in response to the goodness of God, in response to His grace that He has given us, we collectively will proclaim our allegiance to Him now by speaking the Apostles' Creed. And today, we're going to do it a little bit differently than we have in the past. I'm going to ask you, Christian, what do you believe? And you will respond by reading the second part. And so let's all stand in reverence to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.